Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Hi, friends. So we've been talking for a number of weeks now about the book of Romans, um, and we're kind of coming to the climax of this series. We have, like, I think two weeks left after this, um, and this is sort of like Paul's big moment. This is kind of like where everything's clicking into place, and it's Romans 12, which is like a kind of a classic passage. I know um, when I was a kid, I memorized it for points at bible camp and then immediately forgot most of that um got really good at like flash memorization where you just like anyway and 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 so like i think we're all maybe we're not all familiar with romans 12 but like it's it's something that's been in the lexicon for a while um but we often kind of take it on its own it's sort of its own thing um but it begins on this big hook um the word therefore um and Therefore, um, and, and my my mom always had this phrase, and I imagine it's kind of common parlance. It's kind of like a, a one of those. It, 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 um, basically, whenever you see um, in the Bible the word "therefore," um, you have to ask yourself, "What is the therefore therefore?" Which is. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like very hokey, but also you will never forget it. Um, And it's like, yeah, like every time it's like there's some big thought that's being connected into this passage. And what what is what is the therefore of Romans 12? Well, and reflecting on this, I I remember how in my first year at Ambrose, um, I took a 300 level class on the book of Romans, which I did a lot of things that were really ambitious in my first two years that I didn't realize were ambitious until later on. Um, but one of them was like, I took this big class on Romans with Rob Snow. I almost called him Robert Snow as like a bit, and that made me kind of uncomfortable. And and, and if you know Rob Snow and his style of teaching, it was very text-based. There was a lot of like getting into the grammar and getting into like, this is the thesis statement of Romans and all these different things. And there were bits of that that I remember, but the thing that I remember the most, which is very unusual, because I don't think this is the case for any other class, was the final um, because we were so in-depth in Romans that we only got actually to chapter 11 during the actual class time. And I think as a student, I was like, ha, that's funny. We didn't get through the whole book. Um, but like that had to have been intentional. You don't just forget to get to the end of, you know, a, a, a book in class. Um, and as it turned out, the final exam on, uh, of that class, one of the big questions was now read Romans 12. We've read the first 11 chapters of Romans, and in the series, we've studied the first 11 chapters of Romans, which is a lot of, like, theology and Paul kind of taking apart these big, um, um, complex ideas and etc. And then in Romans 12, it's all application. It's all, hey, we've been talking about all of these things, so now Romans 12 is the natural result of everything Paul has been talking about. There's all this theology and groundwork, but this is the execution. And so with that lens, um, it's been a few weeks, and 
Um, unless you're like me, who this week went and read or listened to the entire podcast series on on Romans, like all of our recorded sermons, you've probably forgotten things because it's very easy to just leave Sunday and then never think of a thing again. Um, so let's let's review a little bit what we've been talking about. Um, so we started by talking about Paul's heavy-heartedness as he comes into this letter. He's he's very stressed, he's very concerned, because he's a man of two worlds. He's a Jewish man who studied in the law, he's very well known, but he's also a Roman citizen. And, and he's coming into this community that has kind of these two sides to it. You have the Jewish people um, who are sort of like adapting into like what the new community looks like, and, and the Gentile people who are coming in brand new to all of this with very little context and there are all these divisions happening in the community because this community is it's caught in the categories of the Roman Empire the Roman Empire as we've talked about had all of these standards of, of purity and hierarchy and, and empire language often forces us into categories to think of people in terms of where they belong rather than who they are as a person and this is kind of what the community in Rome was caught in they're they're locked in these debates and these struggles and he just desired unity and he 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 as he's desiring this unity he's also groaning with the earth as he talks about in, in Romans 8 as he's watching the injustice and the oppression that like the Roman empire is bringing about we talked about um how e even in Rome there is intense pollution happening and there are fires all of the time and and so there are all these forces that he's 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 struggling with and so he starts off this letter by making and breaking a whole bunch of binaries. The binaries that he breaks are those of us versus them, old versus new, Jew versus Gentile, etc. He says we're all on the same page. Um, we're all in the mess that empire has created. All of our thinking has been warped by empire. And so the binaries that he's creating are those between the Christ community and the empire. He's drawing a line and he says, this is what the empire does. Empire disassociates, it dislocates. Empire takes, it abuses. Empire takes what is natural, takes nature itself and degrades it. It, it commodifies it. It carves out idols of perfection and encourages us to sacrifice ourselves to it. We talked, in fact, about kind of the beauty standard that empire creates. We're thinking about sort of modern American media and how we not only sacrifice ourselves, but our children even to like this, this idol of idealized beauty. We're all bound to these narratives, this, this white supermodel, supermodel Barbie perfection. And, and in describing the empire in these drastic terms, Paul is trying to set the community apart from them. Moreover, the empire is obsessed with hierarchy, with personal piety and personal gr greatness. But Paul says he is a slave to Christ. The empire preaches the gospel of Caesar, of Augustus, the adopted son of God in power, of Nero, the brainer of peace in Pax Romana. But Paul preaches the gospel of the crucified Christ, who died for his people. The peace of Rome is an illusion. It's fake. It disguises how deeply separated the world actually is. But the peace of Christ is a quiet, hope-filled dream that sees how broken things actually are and longs to bring them together in restored unity. But to do so, as Paul says, we need to separate our thinking from empire. 
one of the ways we talked about that the Empire Binds are thinking is this trap of nostalgia. Nostalgia locks us backwards into thinking about how things used to be and avoiding the fear of loss that comes with change. Change means new patterns of thinking, and that means a loss of old patterns of thinking. See, this, um, this community, you're dealing with two completely different backgrounds, sometimes muddled backgrounds, um, and, and they're trying to unite into one community, one group. And doing so means loss. Paul is, in a way, bringing his audience through a kind of deconstruction process or reconstruction. Um, and, and with that, you have to take your simple kind of uh, assumptions about the world and explore them and often destroy them and have more complicated views of the world. Again, you can't just have simple um, categories of good and bad. You have to start seeing people as they actually are. You can't just say, if you act differently than I do, you're going to hell. Or if you believe different than me, uh, I get to say you're a heretic. That's just not a thing that you can say. It's, it's harder to say, hey, you're, love, you're loved, I'm loved, and though we may hate each other, we're actually a part of the same community now and we have to figure that out. And so instead of this idealized dream of community, this idol of community, Paul pushes us into uncomfortable unity where no one has any advantage, and we're all on the same page. What is that page? Again, we're all on the dredges of empire, as James Wheeler called it, capital S, sin. Not an individual struggle with piety, but systemic forces that overwhelm us and encourages us to dehumanize those around us. We've seen how, um, as Romans 7 talks about, the church hitched sin onto religion, and, and this idea that was good, this law that was good, became corrupted, and then we used it to oppress people. We've talked about the doctrine of discovery a lot and how the church was explicitly involved in cultural genocide. So again, we can't have any nostalgia about the way things used to be. The idea that anything was better before we were in a more complicated community is a lie but we are being equally, and dare I say, universally reconciled. All categories are coming together. And so because of that, and because we have no condemnation, all we can all together guiltless begin the work of justice. In faith that the world will be made right, there will be restoration, we are called into what the church has often dubbed righteousness, but as Dallas pointed out to us, righteousness is not a vague theological term, but right action justice. Righteousness and justice are in fact the same word in the Greek. And so Paul is flushing out the other side of this line he's drawn in the sand, the new community, the alternate economy. We are all universally set free to do justice, to resist the injustice of empire and live without shame in the light of Christ as one united community. And we can hope with endurance that justice will be done, that the groaning of the earth will have its reconciliation, and that God is for the redemption of the world. And so Paul acknowledges the tension that we live and suffer in and paints a picture of future hope that this is not the end, but in our united community, we can carve out a new vision. And so now, after all of that, we're in Romans 12. And after all this groundwork, Paul begins to work out, what does this actually look like? Because he said a lot of things, but like, how do you do that? We want action steps, right? Um, this is a neat manifesto, and I love 
as much as all of you hearing about how much imperialist industry sucks, um, but how are we actually gonna go about the work of deconstructing this thought and learning to love one another when it feels so impossible? So we're gonna work through this chapter kind of verse by verse, a little bit slowly, and we're gonna start with verse one. Therefore, he says, I exhort all of you, siblings, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. A lot of translations will say your act of true worship. Living sacrifices. Sacrificial language is kind of weird to us. Um, we, we think that we don't have a concept of sacrifice. We're like, we've kind of developed beyond that or whatever. Um, we haven't, and we'll get into that. But the point is alive versus dead. The, in Rome, one was expected to sacrifice themselves for the empire, martially, politically, etc. You will lose your life for the emperor if he asks you to. You are a dead sacrifice. Your, your worth is only in dying for a cause higher than you. And we see that a lot in our modern context. Um, we see a lot in, in the modern industry where we're just asked to, like, hey, sacrifice all of your time and become a soulless husk of a person to fulfill the needs of, you know, capitalist commodity, etc. We're expected to die for the empire. Um, I, I think... Uh, of the past few years of how COVID happened. And, and we kind of, uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of the systems in power decided it's more important to be commercially viable than to protect people's lives. We're dead sacrifices. But God asks for living sacrifices. The quality and the glory of your death aren't what matters. It's the tenor of your life. You're not a body to be sacrificed. You're a living thing. And this will be important when we look at this passage. We've been talking about empire idolatry. The, the idolatry of empire is that your body, your life, isn't important, as, isn't as important as what you can offer. But Christ's vision says your life matters. And in fact, the lives of all the people you encounter matter. You're living sacrifices. So what exactly are we sacrificing well, if sacrifices are alive and active, that suggests a life of embodied action. Remember, Paul is contrasting against this largely performative society, a society that's encouraged to look good rather than be good. And so jumping ahead, we'll see um, that Paul will say, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Love has to be honest, active, not just performative. It's easy to be individually pious and individually devotional as what a lot of this book has been interpreted as through an evangelical lens. But, you know, we, we tell people to offer up their quiet time or your Twitter account to God to be individually pious and performative. But it's a much harder thing to offer up, offer up your body, your very self, to the act of loving others. To, in an embodied way, go out, see people, and love and engage with them as who they are. See, I think a lot of people in the church want to be quote-unquote countercultural. Um, and we see this as people stand up and, and they want to make a difference through um, cracking down on structures and legalism and all these different things. That, well, if we're not like this thing, then we'll be countercultural and I guess people will want to be like us. 
But the radical notion that Paul has over and over again in Romans is that the, the way to be truly countercultural isn't just to pile on more dogma, to add more structures, to oppress people further. Rather, the way to be honestly countercultural is to demonstrate radically transgressive love inclusion, to go out to the least of these, the people whose society is oppressing and rejecting, and include them in the community. Over and over again, Jesus does this, and everybody hates him for it. In fact, they killed him for it. It's transgressive. People want to see their their structures and categories maintained. But what Paul is calling us to is a life that breaks those in the act of continually loving others. This is your true and proper worship that you fully and truly, sincerely love and see those around you, these living people. As we go to the next slide, um, this is this is kind of a, me as a dorky English major, this is the first thing I'm thinking of, um, is George Herbert has this poem called The Altar. Um, and I think I have it in my, I can read it through here. Um, and it's basically, I don't want to dig into this super, super deeply, but he he's doing an interesting thing here. Um, where he's moving from this idea of um, this person who's constructing an altar, constructing an altar out of their heart and their tears, to by the end, he is the altar. He says, a broken altar, Lord, thy servant rears, made of a heart and cemented with tears, whose parts are as thy hand did frame, no workman's tool hath touched the same. A heart alone is such a stone as nothing but thy power doth cut, Wherefore, each part of my hard heart meets in this frame to praise thy name. That if I chance to hold my peace, these stones to praise thee may not cease. Oh, let thy blessed sacrifice be mine and sanctify this altar to be thine. We're moving from this idea of we, we, we become the altar. We become the locus of sacrifice as we give up whatever, whatever thoughts and perspectives and biases we have about other people in order that we may love people more. We're sacrificing those in an act of living sacrificial worship that we may love others fully. Which brings us to verse two. Um, do not be conformed to the present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. I think we've heard this a lot in a lot of different contexts. And so I want to start out with saying this present world, what, what does that mean? Because I think we often hear that in this like quasi-Gnostic hatred of the modern age. Like the world is evil and bad and we're supposed to hate it and one day we'll die and our soul will like escape this wretched world and, and be in a kind of temporal existence um, of pure bliss or whatever. But Paul throughout this letter has been very attentive to the earth. You know, what's here matters. The ground, the earth matters. And so this isn't um, this hatred of whatever people are tempted to make this about, whatever people think is worldly. Um, it's just, it's not just that society is inherently evil. He's using this pointed apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language um, thrived in times of political oppression. Um, contrasting the present age with the age to come, the age where justice would be done and righteousness would be fulfilled. Um, 
pointing out that all the systemic injustice and failings of the world around us with the promise that it will be overthrown and there will be peace. And so in Paul's context of an empire presenting itself as having ushered in this golden age, this Pax Romana, whilst people are actually suffering and dying for the empire, his insistence that we don't conform to an imperial line of thought gains new meaning. Think of the Pax Americana, perhaps, and and the way that the West has presented itself as this haven of peace, where actually we see injustice all the time. Don't conform to that age, that age that if we just maintain these structures, peace will be done. Don't conform to this idea of capitalist economy and reducing everyone else to a product. Paul is stressing not to conform to a philosophy of self-sufficient hierarchical betterment, that you can do this alone and you can become uh, the, the locus of your own actualization. Rather, he's saying, be transformed with the renewing of your mind, that, that you can engage with, um, with, with a, a world, uh, the Christ view, that we all actually need each, need each other. You can't put your individual self-interests above others, above the environment, etc. You have to engage with the people around you. Be transformed in your thinking. I love the way this is translated. What is the will of God? What is good and well-pleasing and perfect? If we're seeking what is good and well-pleasing and perfect, we are seeking the will of God, which makes me think in the next slide of a verse from Philippians 4. Finally, siblings, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent and praiseworthy, Think about these things. Let your mind be, be transformed from just seeing the, the, the grossness of the world around us and, and being caught in, in you know, all, all this language of, of suffering, of this is the end and there's nothing else, of you have to just suck it up and bear it and, and do your job. And let your mind be transformed by the things that are lovely, worthy of respect, commendable. And let those dominate what your perspective could be. And so, with all this in mind, we move to the next verse. If we're going to be transformed away from the self-sufficiency of empire, um, well, this is going to be a huge part of it. So in verse 3, he says, For, again, therefore, For by the grace given to me, I say to each one of you, not to think of yourself, more highly, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. I don't know why I picked this picture. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's not a reason for that. Um, yeah, you know, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. We're being transformed away from the self-sufficient productivity of empire. Um, Willie James Jennings talked in his lecture a couple weeks ago about this ethos of colonial whiteness to be self-sufficient, to not depend on anybody else, but just be, be one unified perfect being. But that's not how it works. And the ethos of the Christ community here, as we can see, is to be always humbling yourself, actively humbling yourself. Think, who, who, the, who does the world consider successful? Is it 
modern billionaire individualists who who slave away their workers in giant workshops while they just make all of the income who just buy twitter and make it worse for everybody Romans Disarmed talks about this patron structure in, in Rome, that everyone was a patron of each other, and eventually you are a patron of the empire. So everyone is just this line of dehumanized products. You can only see by, you're only seen by what you can produce for the people ahead of you. But here Paul flips that. We're, we're actually not to think of ourselves as above anybody. We are all equal, and so we must be careful to see others with sober discernment. Don't consider yourself more highly than someone. You have to be constantly deconstructing that thinking and seeing everyone around you as a loved living person who is worthy of your respect. There's um, one of my favorite authors is, is Henry Nouwen, and we'll, we'll get into the next slide. He has this kind of, it's this big article where he's talking about moving from solitude into community and then into mission. And a lot of this is rooted in this, um, you, you have solitude with God, where you develop um, this understanding that you are beloved. And you walk through that into community, and you form community. And when you have a community with other people, and you recognize that you are all beloved, then you can actually go out to start doing some good. And he has this quote in the middle of that that I think about all the time, where he says, community is not an organization. Community is a way of living. You gather around you people with whom you want to proclaim the truth that we are all beloved people of God. Community is not easy. Somebody once said, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. In Jesus' community of 12 apostles, the last name was that of someone who was going to betray him. That person is always in your community somewhere, and in the eyes of others, you might be that person. Community is messy. There's always, always someone you're going to run against who you're like, I just don't like this person. You know, I just don't want to spend time with them. I don't want to do this, etc. But community, especially as presented in Rome, is this constant act, act of deconstructing that and learning to see these people as fully human. Community is the joining together of opposites into a functional whole, and it takes humility. It takes this willingness to lower yourself and fully see other people to participate in that, to put all of your you know, anxieties and everything aside and just say, you know what? This person's loved by God. This person's a living being. I can't think of myself as better than them. I can only see them in their fullness. And with this, we get into kind of the meat of where I want to land on today. Um, as we start in verse 4, um, we see uh, what Romans Disarmed calls the body politic of the church. Yeah, strawberries. Um, he says, for, again, for, we've been contextualizing, um, for just as in one body we have many members, and not all the members serve the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members who belong to one another. And we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. And that sentence is going to continue, but I want to stop here. Because we're seeing this essence that you can't actually do it alone. We've talked so much in the church about the body of Christ um, and different members. And I'm going to engage with that a little bit, but I want to 
kind of engage with it in a different way. Uh, and to start off, I want to reflect, um, I think in my first year, maybe my second year at Ambrose, there was a guy who spoke on one of these like body of Christ passages. This is Corinthians, something like that. And he said something that I've never thought about before. Um, where he was talking about the language of like calling and vocation. And he said, to do what God has called you to do, you might require the gifts of other people. You can't actually do everything, if anything, by yourself. You, you actually aren't equipped to do that. And, and the essence of community is to be constantly relying on others to do the things that you're supposed to be doing. We all, I, I love the way this is said, we are members who belong to one another. You don't belong to yourself, you belong to the people around you. This is the essence of the church community. And so what are gifts? We've talked about, again, we've talked about gifts a lot in the church, but they always seem abstract. Um, one time, uh, a former friend of mine challenged me with, uh, with a couple different action notes, and one of them was, you need to find find your gifts. Go to all the biblical passages that talk about gifts and find which ones you have. And I did that, and I was like, I don't know. These are all kind of weird and vague and nebulous. Like, I guess encouraging people and speaking, but like, that's not a thing that I've been, like, I just encourage people. That's just a thing you do. You shouldn't have to, like, be, like, manifestly gifted with the act of, like, encouraging people. That should just be a thing that we do. And, and, and you go and you, you listen to the way people talk about gifts, and it's a lot of, like, performance. Um, it's a lot of, like, you have tools that you're going to use. Like, you can sing or play an instrument or you can do this. But the biblical gifts, as we often encounter them, are, again, like, serving. Later in this passage, it'll say showing mercy. I've never heard people talk about showing mercy as, like, a biblical gift. And so maybe these aren't just a list of tools, a, like, checklist. We're like, cool, I have these five, and I'm going to lean into them. Uh, and I certainly don't think they're exhaustive. Maybe everything that we do manifests as gift. Maybe, maybe in fact, we are the gifts. Maybe these gifts just come from the essence of who we are and that we, in our daily practice of humbling ourselves, our gifts to one another. We're going to go to the next slide. And there's a passage from Braiding Sweetgrass where Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about the gift economy. There's a story he tells of, of strawberries, of going through um, in his youth, um, there was this wild patch of strawberries, and, and he would go and pick from them um, and come back. And because these were wild strawberries, they were gifts from the land. Versus, like, you go to a plot of land dedicated to growing strawberries. The strawberries are different. They, they grow different. They are, they're harvested differently. And, and the sense is that people own these strawberries. Versus when you encounter them in the wild, they are gifts from the land. And, and, and he would talk about um, making a strawberry cake for, for his father. And again, it's, it's so different to just buy strawberries from like the grocery store and then turn those into a gift versus this act of like you're harvesting strawberries from the ground. The ground has gifted you strawberries and now you gift those strawberries to someone else. It says that is the fundamental nature of gifts. They move. And their value increases with their passage. 
The fields made a gift of berries to us, and we made a gift of them for their father. The more something is shared, the greater its value becomes. And this is hard to grasp for societies steeped in notions of private uh, property, where others are by definition excluded from sharing. Practices such as posting land against trespass, for example, are expected and accepted in a property economy, but are unacceptable in an economy where land is seen as a gift to us all. I think um, one, one of the times when I moved, um, often if you're the last person to move out of a house that you're renting with multiple people, they just leave you a whole bunch of things um, and you just kind of have to figure out how to deal with them. And one of them, um, my, my dear beloved friend, left me this giant wardrobe. And he was like, do you want this? And I was like, sure, I guess I'll take it. Um, and in my head, as he did this, he told me the story of like this. Um, my my grandmother gave this to me, and now I'm give like I don't want to just get rid of it. Can you take it off my hands? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Except when I brought it to my next house, there was no space for it because it was giant. It was just this massive thing, and so it sat out on our porch for a while, and then we like brought it, kind of deconstructed into parts inside, and all of my roommates were like, just sell it. It's so big. Just get rid of it. Just throw it on marketplace. Let anybody take it. I was like, no, no, you don't understand. This was a gift. Like this was this was uh, my friend's grandmother's, and he received it from her, and I've received it from him. I can't just like throw it away to someone. I have to like at, at the very least, it has to be somebody I know, and I have to give it to them personally. And I was so so like anxious about this, and, and it just stayed in the house for months. And eventually, I talked to my friend about this. And I was like, yeah, I still have it because I know it was like valuable to you. And so I haven't gotten rid of it. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, you, you said like your grandmother gave it. He's like, no, I didn't. I never said that. I said, I don't want to deal with this. Can you please deal with this for me? But through this language of, of gifts, you know, gifts have meaning and weight. And we interpret them through this language of meaning and weight. They're not assets to be economized. And, and, and so I engaged with this as a gift and I was like, I need to, I need to honor this, this man and my friend and, and his memory. And it's like, no, this was just a thing. But when we talk about us being gifts to one another and our quote unquote gifts, we, we, we realize that to live in the gift economy is to be a living sacrifice. Always giving oneself up for the others and receiving others in return. If we see ourselves and those around us as a gift, we can't be haughty, we can't be high-minded, because we'll always be humbling ourselves for others and be taking that in return. We're always giving and receiving each other. Willie James Jennings talks about the necessity of being a learner instead of a teacher. Because the colonist um, um, white um, ethic was to be a teacher, to, to go into a place and instruct others how to live their life and how to do things. But instead, we need to be teachers, to go into others and, and be like, let me, or not to be teachers, did I say that? Um, to be learners to other people, to go onto everyone else and say, like, let me, let me learn from you. Tell me about your culture. Tell me about where you came from. Tell me about who you are. And if we're constantly in, in this learner place, as we give and receive one another as gifts, we can't be haughty. We can't see one another as products or economy or any of these things. We come back to nostalgia and this idea that we can't fully see or learn from others while we're trapped in these visions of what can be. 
for a lot of my life, I, I, I realized um, that I had, I had all this anxiety and where that anxiety came from was missing out on the present because I was so trapped in how things had been and projecting that onto how things will go. This is the trap of nostalgia. It, it's, we're looking for perfection. We're looking for this idealized dream of maybe things can be this way, but we have to be present. Present, it's a gift, that's a pun, I just realized. Um, <laughs> when we're trapped in nostalgia, we miss out on what's directly in front of us. As I was caught in this anxiety, especially in my last few years of Ambrose, I, I was trapped in this thinking of like, this is all gonna go away. I'm gonna graduate in a year, and I don't know how many of these people I'll actually get to keep in my life. A lot of them will go off and do other things, and, and that trapped me, because then I couldn't make new relationships with people, because I was like, this is just gonna go away. This is what nostalgia does, this dream of what community can be. We have to just accept what is in front of us, accept the gift of others that people are giving to you, receive that gift, be thankful for that gift, and give yourself in return. And so, through this perspective of gifts, we, learn, we move on to verses 6 to 8. He says, And we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If that gift is prophecy, that individual must use it in proportion to his faith. If it is service, they must serve. If it is teaching, they must teach. If it is exhortation, which is a great word, they must exhort. If it is contributing, again, contributing as a gift that, like, through this language of like you have this special gift um, and that gift is contributing. It's, it's weird. It's who you are. You are a contributing person. They must do so with sincerity. If it is leadership, they must do so with diligence. If it is showing mercy, they must do so with cheerfulness. It's this community that's constantly giving of themselves to others. And this is done through this language of, of the body. And Romans Disarmed has this kind of... Um, almost scandalizing statement. It, it suggests that a body part not used will eventually atrophy. And, and, and I want to be careful with this because I think um, Awaken especially is a great place to come in as people who have been harmed by the church, who have been harmed by some of these communities that have seen each other in an individualistic, uh, economist sort of framework. Um, and I think there's truth to what Romans Disarmed says, but I also want to hasten that with the point that if your body part, if you are a body part and you're injured, you need to heal. You can't just immediately get back to work in line. That's, a, that's an empire ethic. But the dream of the Christ community is a place where healing is necessary, where healing is in fact welcome. A body part cannot be used or abused all the time. But once it is healed, it should be content to let, should it be content to just let the rest of the body go on without it? Sometimes if you're trying to um, get to use your body parts again, that's a really weird phrase. I didn't like how that sounded. Um, but if you're, if you, you, you need to actually be testing the strength uh, of your newly rehealed body. If you just let it be the same, it's never actually gonna get stronger. And I think sometimes this is instructive in this community. Um, and, and that doesn't have to look like going up and, and speaking. Again, like th this gift, these gifts aren't about what you're contributing to the productivity. It's about what are you as a person contributing to the community? 
um, in, in my own life, um, COVID happened. Um, and I spent a lot of that time feeling very disconnected from the church. Um, I, I spent some time on Zoom, but it, Zoom church is super different from actually being involved with people. And the thing that drew me out of that, that got me engaged with the community, was, um, first of all, helping um, with a job at, at Tech at Awaken. But possibly more importantly, that led me um, into engaging with what Darcy started, where every Sunday we went to Leopold's. Every Sunday in the evening, we went engaged with community. And that is you as a, as a part of the body, as you, a person with gifts, contributing to the community. Because you're getting to know people. You're getting to love and be loved by people. Healing is necessary, and we should definitely be encouraging that. Um, but the question is, how are we going to start engaging together? Sometimes risk brings strength, and this is the sort of thing we need to have, as Paul says, sober discernment about. Um, and perhaps we need to broaden our view of what the church can be. Um, I had this thought of an exercise just to like kind of clue people into maybe how Awaken functions. Um, we can just go to the next slide because we have just like this very pretty picture of the church. Um, and I kind of just want to ask, maybe this is a little scandalous, I don't know. Um, how many people do we think it takes to run a sermon, run one Sunday service, at Awaken. And I actually want to like open this out for people to like shout out like different, you know, people. Um, so, so for example, like I am currently one person I'm speaking. That's one person it takes. Six. Okay. What, what are the six people? Okay. Is there anybody else? Worship team, that's one to two to three people. Communion, preparing everything, getting everything set up. Yes, absolutely. Custodians, yeah, the Anna. Person who plans. Chairs. Who wrote the worship song? Ooh, scandalous. Who planned the sermon series? Yeah, that's everybody, yeah. Putting the chairs away, um, cleaning the mugs afterwards, like washing all the dishes, making coffee. I think of like the elders board and, and putting the heat on, running the actual building. And that goes beyond a Sunday service because we have table groups and we have, you know, the campfires that we did throughout the summer and we have morning prayers. And, and I think all of that is what Paul is talking about. We get so locked up into this idea of get, your gift is speaking or leading worship. But your gift is whatever you contribute. Maybe it's just being there and being present. That is a gift. But maybe, maybe it's more than that. We've seen, it takes, I, I think I counted like 21 people or something to, to, to work a single, a single Sunday service. And that's, there's a whole diverse range of, uh, array of things there. You don't have to want to, you know, do worship or run tech. Maybe you just want to lay out chairs 
or arrange chairs. Or maybe there are other things that you actually want to do and, and are good at doing that we haven't made space for, for you. And I want to ask, how might the church have to change to accommodate you? The Acts community was all about this, all about constantly reworking the church to accommodate more people. And how might we have to change our expectations, our nostalgia, to accommodate the church community? This is a constantly ongoing process to fully see each other as human, as loved, as a gift. We need to be challenging ourselves and challenging the people around us to ask, how can we better accommodate people? Maybe there are people who haven't quote unquote participated because we haven't allowed them to. We haven't made space for them. I, I, I can't help but think about Bryn and his experience in his last church and, and how they needed people to run Sunday school but refused to let him do it. How are we going to have to deconstruct our thinking to accommodate everybody, to properly be the whole church? If everyone is a member of the body, we can't do it on our own. We have to do it with everybody else. And in fact, the body becomes less functional, less alive if you try to leave people at the door. We have to operate with this ethos of love. I, I, I'm struck, Willie James Jennings again said, said a thing that was really striking to me where he said he wants to be known as a Christian by how he engages with the land. And, and it, was really, it was really striking to me because I feel like right now we don't necessarily want people to know that we're Christians because there's so much baggage that comes with that. But somebody, I think, once said that they'll know who you are by the way you love others. And I love the idea of maybe getting back to this point that people will maybe associate the church, at least maybe this pocket of the church, with how we love those around us, with how we constantly accommodate those around us, with how we see everyone as a gift. And so quickly, I want to go through the rest of Romans 12 um, and, and see this as Paul describing how to use our gifts, that is, ourselves, in action. He says, love must be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Oh, that got cut off at the bottom. That's interesting. Um, be devoted to one another with mutual love, showing eagerness and honoring one another. Do not lag in zeal. Be enthusiastic in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Endure in suffering. Persist in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Um, hospitality. Practice hospitality. Yeah. There we go. These are, these are gifts in action, the life of loving each other, being a, an alive sacrifice. He says, be eager. Do all of this eagerly in honoring one another. Do not lag in zeal. Be enthusiastic. And I think of yet another thing that Willie James Jennings said, um, where, and Nikayla said this a couple of weeks ago as well, where you see so many churches that are, are um, engaged with this necessity of doing the right thing, um, but fall apart because they don't actually desire it. They don't actually desire the fullness of the life that Paul is presenting. They, they want to keep everything in boxes and categories. Um, 
but we need to desire it. We need to desire each other, this love of each other, the gift of one another. And we need to find a way to engage with that. He says, love must be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And I can't help but think about how in the past few years, we, we, we've been, I think just as a culture, reshaping our views on things like racism, where, where we've learned that we can't just not be racist, you have to be anti-racist. You can't just, you know, be fine with evil. You have to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Hate, you know, hate racism, hate homophobia, hate transphobia, and learn to cling to what is good, to love people. This is what it means to pursue love actively, to honor others above yourself. And the next slide will go back to Henry Nouwen, where he, he's talking about how to practice this vision of community. And a thing he really leans into, into is forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is to allow the other person to not be God. Forgiveness says, I know you love me, but you don't have to love me unconditionally because no human being can do that. To, give, to forgive other people for being able to give you only a little love, that's a hard discipline. And to keep asking others forgive, for forgiveness because you can only give a little love, that's a hard discipline too. It hurts to say to your children, to your wife or husband, to your friends, that you cannot give them all that you would like to give. But still, that is where community starts to be created. When we come together in a forgiving and undemanding way, to see each other as gift, as a living person who we love, who is loved, and to set aside your pride, set aside your need to be right, and just accept those around you. The next slide, we get the end of the chapter. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peace peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourself, dear friends, but give place for God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We can only live in this peace when we begin to see each other as a gift. Paul, in the middle of this, talks about the psalmic justice. Um, you, you go through the psalms, and there's a lot of, of people asking God to fulfill their vengeance, saying, God, strike down my enemies, etc., etc. But we get to this weird contradiction when we actually encounter Jesus and see what he does with his enemies. Because Jesus overturns this at the cross and forgives his enemies. Vengeance is God's, but he pursues peace and justice. Again, what is the peace of God versus the Pax Romana or the Pax Americana? What does genuine peace look like? And yet, and I want to stress this, he says, if it is possible, so long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He's not asking people to roll, roll over and just allow abuse to happen. He's not saying, well, people, you know, are abusing you, so you have to just live at, at peace with that. As long as it depends on you, there is justice involved. And we, we go back in Romans and we see Paul assuring us that justice and restoration are coming. But for now, as much as it is possible, 
we live in love and peace with one another. To not repay anyone evil for evil, but consider what is good. This is the Christ community that he lays out. This is where all of Romans is leading. This whole book, um, resisting empire, resisting oppression, resisting the, the economical forces at, at play. And, and his, he goes to this fractured, hurting community, this community that doesn't know how to get along. He says, you need to humble yourself. Look at the people directly in front of you. Look at the people in your life. It's easy to get swept up in all of this. But who are the people you're interacting with? How can you love them? How can you be loved by them? How can you learn to see your life and the lives of others as a gift? We're going to go um, in a second, because I think it might just autoplay. Um, but I have a clip in the next slide um, from a movie that I love called Before Sunrise. Um, and Before Sunrise is this movie about um, two people. They meet on a train, and they very quickly kind of fall in love with each other. But the movie is mostly just them walking through Paris and talking to each other, talking about these big, big um, problems of life. And so when we go to the next slide, I just want to play this clip because it's talking about this idea of love and connection. There's like a lot there that we could unpack, but um, I, I, I love fundamentally this idea that like, Love is connection, that God has made manifest in our attempt to love one another, because that's what the church is. You know, we have all this language about wanting to be successful, about wanting to be, you know, good and self-sufficient, but it comes down to what of ourselves are we willing to give to one another? How are we willing to be living sacrifices, giving up yourself for those around you? Paul's grand conclusion is that the goal of the church is to love one another. That we actually resist empire when we stop trying to climb the hierarchical ladder and beat it. To stop building these idols of productivity and perfection and begin to give ourselves to one another in the living sacrifice of humble community. And, and we're going to keep unpacking that um, the next service as we talk about kind of what structures are in play here and, and everything um but yeah I, I for now i just want us to to meditate on that idea that like love is connection we are a gift to one another god is made manifest in our attempt to love each other it's not going to be successful we fail a lot pretty constantly but the answer is in the attempt the answer is in the attempt to live with those that we really don't want to be with the attempt to see one another as equals, as fully loved, as a gift. And what happens when we actually do that? And so I want to end. Um, last time I spoke, I just kind of ended. And then I listened to all of the sermons. And I realized, oh, there are usually prayers at the end of this. Um, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull from this prayer that we've been using um, this entire series, this Franciscan prayer. And as always, it lands up really, really well with what we've been talking about. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, 
to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thank you.